It's always good at the beginning of a year to sort of uh, think and pray what God's saying to us. And I, I've uh, been doing that and talking with others as well. And uh, really, what I've been looking at, been looking at, is in One Kings, the first half, of, uh, the second half of One Kings, with you. When I've had a chance to preach, it's been a bit Christmassy for about the last three or four weeks, hasn't it? But when we've had a chance to look at, <clears throat> at what we're at something systematic. We've been looking at 1 Kings, starting from Solomon and going onwards. And actually, I have felt that it's a prophetic passage for us. It's got prophetic application for us. <clears throat> and I feel in these first four or five months, uh, probably three or four, yeah, four or five months of this year, going to look right through the rest of 1 Kings, through Elijah up to the, to the um, handover to Elisha. And Steve and I will be looking at that together, because I think there's an application for us in that prophetically here at Winchester Family Church. But it, it obviously has a wider application as well as what I'm saying this morning. And this morning I want to talk about an Elijah people for 2010, um, a people who are Elijah-like. <clears throat> Last time I was preaching from 1 Kings, we looked at Abijah and Asa and how God looks on the heart. And that's the most important thing, getting your heart right with God. And uh, we looked at the compare those two kings. Actually, what I'm going to do this morning sweeps through a number of years of Israel's history. I'm not even going to spend very long on it, but I do want to make a point out of it, so bear with me. But um, the years between Solomon dying, which is 1 Kings 11, and Ahab becoming king, which is in 1 Kings 16, where we're going to start this morning... Those are 58 years. That's just 58 years. Now that's quite relevant to me because I'm 58 years old. Just to let you know that. Um, And um, I will be until March anyway. So it's the same period as my lifetime. So to me it doesn't feel very long. Uh, Some of you young ones might think like that's an eternity. But... There's just quite a short period of history between Solomon and Ahab. But it is a dreary and depressing story as you watch king after king fail. We did actually look at Jeroboam and one or two at the beginning. But this is Israel's kings. Let's just quickly go through some verses. First of all, Nadab, 1 Kings 15, verse 26. That will go up on the screen for you. It says, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. Next, Baasha, 1 Kings 15.34. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. Next, Elah, 1 Kings 16, slightly different. Now verses 9 and 10, Zimri, one of his officials, who had command of half his chariots, plotted against him. Elah was in Terzah at the time, getting drunk in the home of Arza, the man in charge of the palace at Tizah. Zimri came in, struck him down, and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah. Then he succeeded him as king. Then a couple of verses later it says, Because of all the sins Baasha and his son Elah had committed and had caused Israel to commit, so they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. That's him out the way. Next one, Zimri. 
When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the royal palace and set the palace on fire around him. So he died. Because of the sins he had committed, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and walking in the ways of Jeroboam and the sin he had committed and had caused Israel to commit. Zimri off the stage. Omri. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and in his sin which he had caused Israel to commit, so that they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. And finally we arrive at Ahab. And this is the testimony to Ahab. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Quite a miserable record. A miserable record. So what is the first lesson I want you to learn and I'm stirred about this morning? This is the first lesson. Political change did not signal a change in spiritual outlook. For 58 years, it was one king after another. And the political changes did nothing for the spiritual state of Israel. Now, 2010 is a year in which we will have a general election here in the United Kingdom. I think probably most of us share a dilemma. This is my dilemma. I don't know who to vote for. I don't know about you, but I don't know who to vote for yet. It really seems hard to work out what anybody's going to do or who is the best person to lead our country. I honestly tell you that frankly. What do the leading contenders stand for? I have difficulty telling you. If I think of Mr. Brown, think of Mr. Cameron and the other chappie, Mr. Clegg. That's right, you can tell I'm not too conscious of Mr. Clegg, but I'm not anti-Mr. Clegg, just isn't on my radar so much. But actually, I am really not sure what they stand for. Who represents godly values? That's how I think, and I can't answer that very well either. Who can I trust to speak, tell me the truth? Can't answer that very accurately either. Now, over my 58 years, there have been many prime ministers in this country. I was actually alive when Churchill was Prime Minister for the second time, and then Macmillan. But I don't remember much about them because I was young. What I do remember is Wilson, Heath, Callaghan, Thatcher, Major, Blair, and now Brown. And I remember them. And they've all had aspects which you might call good, and certainly aspects which other, many people would call bad. But I do know one thing for sure. Political change has not changed the spiritual climate of my country. Political change has not brought spiritual breakthrough in my nation, in the United Kingdom. Actually, over my lifetime and over recent years, I would say this country has become more secular, more morally confused, more godless more materialistic, more promiscuous, more socially dysfunctional, and more anti-Christian in my lifetime. I would think that's pretty clear. The spiritual climate shows some flickers. The church, I would say, has improved a bit. The church in general is better than it was 40 years ago when I was 18 and a sick former, before I was baptised in spirit. I would genuinely say... I. 
I, for the last 15, 20 years, I've led churches far bigger than anything I knew as a youngster. Went to churches of 50, 60, 100. And, and people are saved. There's stuff going on. It's not completely a blank. But this is the bit that I really feel stirred about. This nation has not yet been impacted with the gospel. It really hasn't. We, you know, we're doing things, stuff happens in the church, but actually the nation as a whole has not had anything near a revival. It really hasn't. The culture hasn't been impacted by the gospel. The nation hasn't yet been impacted by the gospel. And we've got to see that what we learn in 1 Kings 15, 16 is that, that we no good, ha- and I think the Americans are worse at this than us, the if only heresy. If only a certain administration got into power. If only this guy or this woman became elected as president or prime minister. That would be better for the church. I don't think it, we're quite so easily into that. It's probably more prone in America. I think that went on in the last ten years. But it's always wrong. They are not the answer. When the next administration or government gets in, I can tell you what we'll get. We'll get more of the same, brothers and sisters. Now you think, is he, does he despise politicians? I don't despise politicians. I just see no salvation in politicians. I see no answer to the United Kingdom in a political change. I've seen quite a left-wing government really feeding the unions and allowing them in the 70s to do what they like. I've seen a very strong right-wing government, particularly thinking of Margaret Thatcher, pulling it right back the other way. You've seen the third-way government of Mr Blair. And I tell you, that's not an answer to the real problems of Britain. What I want you to get this morning is the church, the gospel, is the answer. The church holds the only thing for our nation. It's not politics. We need a spiritual revival in 21st century Britain. We really do. We need in this country, in this decade, I hope and pray, to see something that significantly breaks in to the the psyche of modern Britain. With the gospel with truth about God and Jesus Christ, a revival of what I'd call biblical Christianity. I was looking for that in the 1970s, and I'd say, to quote you two, I still haven't seen what I'm looking for. I have still not seen what I'm looking for. I don't feel we've had revival, and I still feel it's the only answer for Britain. Something that actually changes the culture. Something that actually impacts, in the end, politics. But it comes from a rise of spiritual things. You can see it through the 18th and 19th century happening with the, what's often called the evangelical revivals of those times. So there's a big lesson straight away. Political change will not bring spiritual change. The answer's going to lie somewhere else. Here's another lesson that I see in that brief survey of chapters 15 and 16 of 1 Kings. This is the tedium of evil. I tell you, sin is boring. These chapters are boring. These chapters in the Bible are boring. Why are they boring? Because they're just one person after another doing evil, doing evil, doing evil. Evil is boring. Do you ever look at the pop celebrity culture? Do you look at it and think about it? Well, it's drugs, it's alcohol, it's alcohol abuse, it's rehab, it's drugs, it's alcohol abuse, it's rehab, it's sex, it's broken relationships, it's rehab, it's drugs. Isn't that boring? 
Isn't it boring, your pop culture? Don't you think so? We're so enamoured with it. Just look at them. I'm not going to mention names. You could think of half a dozen. And we all sit there reading our magazine with a culture, reading the magazine, watching it, watching them go excessive on drugs and alcohol, then go to rehab, then come out and then do this, then have that relationship and that one's broken. It's not creative at all. It's quite tedious. Goodness has more inherent originality in it than evil does. It really does. It's more creative. Evil can distort It can ruin, it can corrupt, it can do reruns and you can get more and more gross till you break even your own sense of decency, which is what you see happen. Things like, oh, I don't know, uh, what's that humorous bloke, Uh, Jonathan Ross and the other guy, Russell Brand, when they did that over-the-top thing with that really just rude, infantile thing to uh, sax on the answer phone. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry. But, you know, I mean, that's all you can do is get more and more gross until you break even your own rules of decency. It's not really creative. What's creatively funny about phoning up and sort of talking very obviously sexually about someone's granddaughter? I mean, is that funny? Is that creative? I mean, that's, in a sense, all that evil can do. Just get more and more gross. It's exactly what happens with these kings. Walked in the way of the sins of Jeroboam. Did even worse. Did even more idolatry. Wow, how creative is that? But actually, there is something exciting in our modern world. It's knowing God. And some of us can get a bit weary and get a bit, oh dear, I can. But actually, to know God and to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour is the most exciting thing that can happen to you. It really is. And we need to buck up as Christians and realise Don't look round and say, oh, you know, I wish I was able to indulge myself like these people around me. That is a boring, futile way to live. Just spiralling down and down and down. The hope of creativity and life is in Jesus Christ. That's where there is something of of, of scintillating, something, something creative, something with hope in it. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's move on to something exciting. Because that's what we hit in 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Suddenly, Elijah is on the scene. Right into this tedious record of one evil king after the other, no change in the nation, just a slow decline, In comes Elijah. Now, James tells us a little more. I want to put the James verses up as well. Thank you, Harry. So if we look at James, it says this. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed that the heavens and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So I want us to have those verses in mind and just look at a few things. Just actually we're going to look at three aspects of Elijah briefly now. Sort of thought about polit- politics isn't the answer, the gospel is. Sin is just one tedious, gross act after another. In the end it becomes boring. But let's look at now a different line. Elijah, who was he? Who was Elijah? Elijah seems to appear from nowhere. In a time of gross spiritual darkness, suddenly he appears on the scene. His introduction is simply, now, Elijah. 
But this is a very important fact about Elijah, which is very encouraging for everybody in this room who's a Christian. It says this. Well, for everyone it's encouraging, actually. The Bible is very clear. It says this. He was just like us. The word of God says he was just like us. It's a telling phrase. He was a vulnerable man. We'll see that later in the story. He didn't always be on top of everything. He got depressed, actually. He had needs. He was ordinary. We don't know much about him, but we know he came from Gilead. He was a Tishbite. And that means he came from a rugged country area where the main occupation was sheep rearing, was being shepherds. Actually, Elijah almost certainly had no human advantages. He didn't have a high education. He probably didn't have any noble background. His background presumably was the same, a sort of shepherding background, country background. And he certainly would have had no connections in high places. He was a man just like us. And here's the exciting thing. God wants us to be men and women just like him. We can be men and women just like him. Now, some commentators talk about Elijah as a forerunner of Jesus Christ. I think they get it slightly wrong. I mean, you can make opinions and comments, I'm sure, like it. But uh, actually, in some ways, John the Baptist is, is seen as an Elijah figure in the New Testament. They talk about, I mean, there's things you can learn about Jesus in every great figure of the Old Testament, of course. But I actually think that Elijah is a particular prophetic picture for those who usher in Jesus, like John the Baptist, and like, I believe, the church is meant to. The Elijah is a sort of challenge to us that we prepare the way for Jesus at all sorts of levels. Maybe preparing the way for Jesus in the gospel and revival, but actually even in the return of Jesus, because one day Jesus will come back again. And I believe the church is to be an Elijah people who prepare the way for the Lord. So that's just a by the way. Let's just get back into who he was. When he came and stood before Ahab, there is no doubt that Elijah was very different from everybody around him. You've got to use your imagination. Somehow or other, Elijah got through all the courtiers and the soldiers that would have surrounded someone like Ahab, and he got right up into Ahab's face. 1 Kings 17.1, he's speaking directly to Ahab. And we can only assume God opened a door. God can open doors for Christians. Can open amazing doors. He does it for Joseph. We see it with Moses. We see it with Daniel. We see it with Paul, really, in the New Testament. And I believe that God can do it for Christians today. We need some Christians, maybe none of us, or maybe some of us, to get doors open right into the heart where decisions are made in our nation. Because that's what happens to Elijah. Somehow, God opened the door. But Elijah always stayed distinct from the culture he was speaking into. And God's calling us to be Elijah's. Now, I'm not really going to knock this, but I'm not sure that it's about becoming an MP or something. I'm not saying it's wrong for Christians to become MPs. That's probably right for some. But I think, and actually in this story, there's an Obadiah, which we won't look at much, in 1 Kings 18, who is a man of God who is right on the inside. He's in the court of Ahab. So there are people in there, and he has influence, and he protects prophets from destruction and being killed by Jezebel. So there's certainly a place for people with an Obadiah model. But Elijah is more like something different, if you like. 
which is what Christians are supposed to He seems to stand distinct and yet be engaged with Ahab. So he's not in an ivory tower, he's not hidden away somewhere, but he is, on the other hand, quite distinct. He stands there with a word to speak into Ahab. And I believe in many ways that's what the church ideally is called to be. My own personal opinion is that I wouldn't be very thrilled at being involved in a church-state link. I think it would be a bad thing. <laughs> I'm going to give all my opinions to that, I don't care. I think the Church of England would be a lot healthier if it's disestablished. I think, we, I think church-state links are not good. I don't think they've been good since Constantine onwards. But I think the church is not meant to be divorced from the culture and in some sort of hidey hole somewhere, but I think we are meant to stand distinct and speak into it something different. But they're engaged with the people, which Elijah, you'll certainly see, is. And God calls us to that. So that was a little on who he is. Let's look at what motivated him. Elijah, what motivated him? Well, you don't have to look that far. There's a little phrase in, I think it's going to go up on the screen. It's part of 1 Kings 19 verse 10. And it says this. Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. What motivated Elijah, and this is a very important motivation actually, was a burning passion for God and for God's glory. Now, he did have a concern for his people, you'll see that, but the concern for the people came out of a passion for God and his glory. Do you feel that? I feel it sometimes. I feel such an ache sometimes for the glory of God, that people would know Jesus that people would understand God's ways do work, that people would realise what a load of lies they're fed about morality, about what's right and good. You know, um, (coughs) well, I I read too many newspapers, especially when I'm not so well. And you just read at the turn of the year, and I don't know, just a little headline thing I saw yesterday... I can't even bore you with the context, but it was a spread in the Times. And and it was this guy going back to his own hometown. And somewhere it summarised what is the the sort of... And it was was actually... This was a favourable article, so what I'm about to say was not critically said. And it summarised that the values were... Let me just get this right. Have fun. Don't judge. Chill out. Have fun. Don't judge. Chill out. Now, you think, oh, that sounds pretty good, John. That sounds pretty good. Have fun, don't judge, chill out. But hang on a minute. In this context, have fun means loads of single mums going and getting absolutely plastered every Friday night and Saturday night. We're having fun, we're drinking alcohol, we're ruining our livers, we're leaving our kids on our own, we don't want men. That was part of the article. So what fun are we talking about? And then there's don't judge. I don't know what that means. It means just don't have any moral standards at all. Let anybody do what they like, do their own thing. Chill out means don't get involved, whatever. You know, that is our cult. Now, when I hear that, I don't despise the people. I just ache because that's in a context. And you're reading about this hometown. You read about drugs. You read about alcohol. You're reading about people just partying and, 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 and total mix-up in their family lives. And lots of single mums saying, oh, we don't need men. We need men. And, and, and you just, this is the context. And you think, my nation needs the gospel. Needs to know about Jesus. That is not the basis of life. And it doesn't even work. It's not even what you're doing. You're not really having fun. And you do judge. I mean, I can explore every one of those phrases. It's just a myth. 
We're just in an amoral confusion. And we need to be motivated that, oh God, that your name would be lifted high. Oh God, that people would know about you. That people would know Jesus' love, forgiveness, hope. It's not a message of whacking people around the head. It's a message of wake up and see what a mess you're in, but come and know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. Never, ever think that what we've got is some dull second best to don't judge, have fun, chill out. I mean, it's not. It's not. It's a drift. There's no moral compass left. That's why we're struggling to know who to vote for. And because nobody's clear, but we need to be clear. We follow God. We're concerned with his glory. We need a holy indignation sometimes to fire us with a passion for the name of Jesus. That we want Jesus to be honoured and a grieving over the atheism and the arrogance and the amorality that is in our country. Atheism, arrogance and amorality. Grieve over it. Don't just get angry. I could do Victor Meldrew. I do him very well. But I also feel grieved by it. And I think, God, we need revival. God, we need you to break in. Elijah comes and describes himself as the servant of the living God. It's a magnificent phrase. He comes and he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives whom I serve. I love it. He breaks in on all this miserable setup. And he says, I serve the living God. That's what he says in one way. And then he begins to speak. Now you can say, oh, that's easy for Elijah. You know, that's Old Testament. They all understood. It wasn't easy for Elijah. We've got to be similarly courageous. There is a living God who I know and who I serve. But actually, Elijah had huge challenges as much as we have. In the time of Ahab, remember they've had 58 years of growing idolatry. 58 years of growing idolatry, decline of the worship of God. In the reign of Ahab, the Lord God was distinctly out of fashion, like he is in modern Britain. What was in fashion was to worship Baal. Jezebel had seen to that. The worship of Baal was everywhere. And it was the in thing to do. No one who was anyone worshipped the Lord God of Israel. You worship Baal. A few probably nominally kept up a bit of nominalism with the Lord God. But the action was in the idolatry, the promiscuity and the occult power of the Baal worship. That's where the action was. Where the real, where the real action took place. Where you could have a real orgy without any guilt. And where you could really sometimes touch even occult power. That was where the action was. I don't think that's so unlike today. Who The Christian God is out of fashion in our nation. Who worships the Christian God? It's discredited, isn't he? Mr Dawkins and others have done their work on that, haven't they? If you're not an atheist or an agnostic, which many people are proud to call themselves today, surely the only thing to go for is one of the new multi-faith, extra-tolerant, me-centred spiritualities. That's the thing we do today, isn't it? New age, me-centred spirituality, me-improvement type spiritualities, or some multi-faith, tolerate-anything type. You don't go for God of the Bible, the Christian God. That's so passé, that's so 19th century. No, he isn't. 
He is the only true and living God, and I serve him. And I know many of you do. There is only one true living God. All these others are false gods. This Elijah, don't think Elijah was in the majority. He was in a tiny minority. Everybody was in the And he comes in and says, I serve the living God. That's, how he, that's, that's the position he comes from. I serve a God who's alive. I've been reading a book over the last week, God's Undertaker. It's an excellent book. Recommend it. God, John Lennox, professor of mathematics at Cambridge. God's Undertaker. Has science buried God? No, it hasn't. It's an excellent book explaining that. Very well written. And frankly, this country is full of nonsense. God is well alive, thank you very much. And the arguments are not lost. In fact, the arguments for God are far stronger than they were 30, 40, 50 years ago. Those arguments have got stronger in my lifetime, not weaker. That's interesting. And any thinking scientist will tell you that. Dawkins is an idiot. He's just, he just, he's just com- totally committed to naturalism. He doesn't, he's not looking at evidence scientifically at all. But actually, actually, we have strong case for a living God, even from science. But I don't need that. I know him. Don't you? I know him. He's my Lord. He's my saviour. I speak to him every day. I know his presence. I know the living God. I serve him. We can tell people there's a living God who you can know and serve. Elijah's authority comes from that. And in our backslidden Western world, we need a people who are the same as Elijah, who can come from the presence of God with a clarity in their message. Not anger, but a clarity. There is a living God. I know him. He can meet your needs. He can touch your life. We need to be a people who genuinely know God or we will lack credibility. Elijah's strength and courage is not from himself. You can think, well, Elijah was a big, tough man. I'm not sure he was. I mean, as I said, he's certainly prone to depression. And we're told that he was a man just like us. Certainly had emotional ups and downs. His strength came from these two simple things. He knew the living God. And he served the living God. That was the spaces of his strength for his daily life. That he knew there was a God who was alive. There was a true and living God. And he knew him. And he served God. So his daily commitment was to live out practical obedience to the living God. That's all we need to start with. Let's start there. Let's start as people who know their God and say, my life is to serve God. Not about going full time or something like that. Just what I'm doing is to serve God. To serve the living God. In the midst of a materialistic atheistic, confused, corrupt Britain of 2010s, do you know the living God, brothers and sisters? Do you say, rock bottom, I serve God. I'm a school teacher, I'm a businessman, but I know that I serve the living God. And wherever I am, I'm aware of that identity. Are those convictions reflected in how you live? Do you live in your marriage, your career, your school, college, whatever, your use of time? Do you live as someone who serves the living God? That's how I live. I think many of you do, praise God. I want to encourage you, actually. I'm not just challenging you. You live differently. Elijah uh, lived differently. He lived as someone who knew and served the living God. 
And that is the basis of his impact. So let's move on, finally. What did he do then? Certainly in the beginning. (coughs) Elijah, what did he do? Well, Elijah was zealous for the Lord God. He yearned that people would honour God. I hope most of us in this room are in that position. We're zealous for God and we yearn that people would honour God. So what did he do? Well, the Bible tells us. He prayed. He prayed. Yeah, he prayed. That's the first thing he did, was he prayed. And James sort of fills it out for us in the James passage. It says, Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain. There's a clear implication, if you put James and 1 Kings 17 together, that before Elijah appears on the scene, speaking to Ahab and saying, it won't rain until I say so, which sounds weird. Where did that come from? He prayed. He had been praying. He didn't just have a bright idea. He wasn't just a big ego. It won't rain unless I say so because I'm mighty me. That wasn't him at all. He was a man who had prayed. He prayed because he knew that God ruled over all. He prayed because he knew that the Almighty could do whatever he wanted to do, could make things happen and change things. He prayed because he knew he was weak. What could he do about Ahab and Jezebel and the whole jolly country filled with bar worship? And so he prayed, oh God, we need to do something. And here's a key issue. He prayed in faith. Now, where did he get this idea of no rain? Did he just have a bright idea? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll ask, them to ask God to have, stop the rain happening. Not at all. Elijah's prayer was rooted in the word of God. Look at this. Deuteronomy 11. He knew his Bible. I hope we do. This is what he was rooting his prayer in. God had said centuries earlier this. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land and in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful or you will be enticed away to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Elijah's prayer was rooted in the word of God. And that's got to be the same with us. Prayer has to be rooted in the Bible. Rooted in the God of the Bible. Rooted in an understanding of what God is like. Now, we're in a slightly different covenant, of course, bigly different, the new covenant. But the principle's the same. In Elijah's day, his praying earnestly was not in a vacuum. He got hold of God's word. He said, God, this nation's in a mess. You said you'd stop it raining when they did this. They're all worshipping idols. The whole thing is collapsing into bail confusion. Will you please stop the rain as you said you would? That is roughly what I believe Elijah prayed. And I think I have confidence in saying that. He prayed earnestly, God, it's time for you to intervene and stop the rain, like you said you would. Elijah knew God's name needed to be vindicated. So he got into his Bible, really. He got hold of Deuteronomy 11 and he prayed earnestly, 
Do this, Lord, which you said you would do. Now, I believe that's our starting point, prayer. Next week, we've got a prayer week from the 15th to the uh, 10th, sorry, 10th to the 15th of January. We've got three major evenings, Sunday, Wednesday, (coughs) and Friday, and we've got three mornings. And I just want us to gather to pray, please. We might be, if if you're concerned about the state of your nation, come and pray. If you are concerned about the state of the church, this church or the church in general, come and pray. If you feel weak (coughs) and unable to do much, pray. If you are concerned that God's name is dishonoured and you want his name to be lifted high, pray. Because that is the first place that Elijah started. That's the place Elijah started. It's where we need to start. Praying. Rooting our prayers in God's word and in faith, which is what we will endeavour to do as we gather to pray for ourselves, our church, our city, our nation and the regions around. He moves on a bit when we get to 1 Kings 17. He goes beyond his prayers because he knows that God is answering his prayers. And once he knows his prayers are being answered, he wants to confront Ahab so that Ahab and the nation make the connection between the drought and their idolatry. He sees that the nation is now going into a very difficult time. And by the way, Elijah will suffer difficulties with the nation. He is not exempt from the impact of the drought. And we see that in the next, as the chapter goes on. He has to have miraculous provision of water because he goes through the drought with the nation. And as the nation goes into turmoil, he goes into turmoil with it. But he knows that there is a link between the state of the nation's sort of climate, if you like, and its spiritual state. So although Elijah is different, he's not indifferent to the people and what's going on. And he decides that he's got to go and link this in the mind of Ahab and before the people so that they might turn back to the living God as they go through this uh, drought. I've got a, a couple of quick lessons here. We're in the last point, but I want to say a couple of things here. Elijah understood something that we as Christians need to understand, and this applies personally and nationally. The most important thing is not to be easy and comfortable and happy. The most important thing is to know God. And it is better to lose one hand and go to heaven than to have two hands and go to hell. And actually, it's better to have a drought and turn back to God than to have lots of food and water and to be in a godless, hell-bent confusion. Do we really understand that ourselves? Do we understand that God's perspective, and Elijah would have shared it, is it's better to go through difficulties if it drives you back to God than it is to have a comfortable time and stay ignorant of God. Now, I'm not saying God gives you trouble to turn you back to himself, but even as individual Christians, in particularly in our modern culture, we can get an obsession with comfort. But actually, it's better sometimes to go through difficulties if they bring you hope and answers. We've had personal experiences of that in our lives many times. I don't relish them. I don't rejoice in them. I don't think they're good. But I have been through financial crises, We've been through personal crises. And I know that some of them have driven us back to God in a way that otherwise we wouldn't have gone. And you have to accept that is a better thing to happen. It's better for Elijah to say, I want this country drought that they might come back to God. He said, ooh, that's a bit nasty. It's not nasty. It's understanding values. 
He knew there was something worse than physical calamity. There is something worse than physical calamity. It is spiritual blindness and moral delinquency. There is something worse than physical calamity. It is spiritual blindness and moral delinquency. It's better to experience a drought and turn back to God. Now, in this country, 2009 was a difficult year for many people. And many of us would have touched that and experienced it ourselves. I personally don't think 2010 will be any better. I'm not a pessimist. I'm just realist, actually. I think there'll be less money for public services. I think we'll see some very severe cuts in our public services over the next few years. I think there'll be higher taxes and there'll be more unemployment. I'm not just a pessimist. I'm a realist and I read realistic papers. And I think the politicians are just winding up to a general election. We have huge financial crises to work our way through in this country. I think also that the climate change thing will get worse. I mean, they did nothing at Copenhagen and I don't really think they find it very easy to get their act together on that scale. I think there will continue to be random fanatical terrorism. There are many failed states like Yemen and Somali which will continue to churn out the nutters who do these things like we saw at Christmas. And I don't see that stopping. I think we've got an unwinnable war in Afghanistan and I think we've got political impotence. I'm a cheerful chap, aren't I? I think I'm a realist. But I've got great hope in the gospel. And our people in our country need to know the gospel as it gets harder. It's not going to be a life of Riley in Britain for the next five or ten years. It isn't. People are going to wonder if they can even get on a plane. It's going to take you six hours to have a body search to get on a plane. People are going to find that finances are going to be restricted. You can't borrow £180 billion a year and it doesn't come from anywhere. It's going to come from somewhere. And we're going to notice it. But we're going to believe God and share the gospel. If this country starts squealing and squeaking, that is an opportunity for the gospel. That's an opportunity. And I would rather we weren't in a razzmatazz hedonism if we respond to Jesus. I like being comfortable. I really do. I love it. I hate not having enough of anything. I like as much of everything I want. I honestly mean that. God knows it because I pray about it. I am quite selfish. I'm quite indulgent. I do not enjoy hair shirts. But I actually know that it's sometimes better for an individual or a nation to go through difficulties. We need to be ready to be Elijah-like, say there's a drought and it will drive you back to God. And the answer is going to be God. And you're going to see that as we go through Elijah. God will bring the rain. Baal won't bring the rain. God will bring the rain. Because there is a living God who we worship and serve. Hallelujah. Wow, what am I saying? I'm saying what's on my notes, but it's all in the wrong order. Hallelujah. These things, we need to see, basically, this is an opportunity to share the gospel. The point I wanted to make is, with prayer came proclamation. That was the point I'd forgotten, the P. As well as prayer, there is proclamation. He goes and proclaims to Ahab, this drought is linked to the spiritual state. There is a living God who will provide the, water, the, the rain when I pray. And then there's other things, as you know, <coughs> that come in the story. We'll see them later. But basically, it's a challenge to the nation. You have an opportunity to turn back to God. And we need to start 2010 with the same attitude. We're going to pray. We're going to pray for our nation. 
and we're going to proclaim the only hope there is, which is Jesus Christ. Whether it's your personal life or your national life, the gospel is the answer. It really, really is. It is better to know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour than to have anything else in this life. Please don't get envious of people with lots of material things. That is nothing if they don't know Jesus. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? It doesn't, does it? Just think about it. There's no profit at all. So if you know Jesus and have eternal life, what profit is that? It's wonderful. 